0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Francisco Barsena, who is running Flask and Python in production to power a nonprofit food purchasing service. Francisco, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, how's it going, Nick? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. So, do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today?
1: So, the app that I'm going to be talking about today is basically an app that facilitates the, the creation of purchase orders um, in such a way that that uh, inner city communities can have access to fresh produce. Okay.
0: So does this run like in a specific country or state?
1: Yeah, it runs in in Los Angeles. It's a program that's been going for over 3 years now.
0: Okay. Have you been developing it then for 3 years?
1: Yeah, there was there was a series of of project phases where uh the the more more features were added to the system in each phase. And initially the system started pretty basic and it although it was pretty basic it did the heaviest lifting for them which was to allow them to create child orders out of uh, a master order that they would place from uh, the terminal market and eventually over time more more uh, features were added to it some reporting features and some invoicing features as well
0: Interesting. So, how does this work then? Does someone, like, is this this is not a site open to the general public, right?
1: It's not. It's a it's a tool that they use internally, and the way that it works is that they log in, and they're able to populate a database with the uh, participants of this program, and essentially create like a master order where they. Place everything that they'll need for that week and then at the end of it there will be uh, orders created for each individual participant for uh, their own record keeping and uh, another another cool thing that was added to that was a a module that it downloads the pricing data that uh, that is available in this food co-ops produce catalog so it retrieves all of that and you know it really it allows them to work more effectively and not spend hours uh every week going and and looking at the these uh prices themselves and clicking around the the usda.gov website
0: yeah automation is is definitely fun especially if you can get rid of busy work like that so i guess before you get into that are you the only developer on this service
1: yeah i was the only developer for this service i went in there and i I learned about their program the uh, problem that they were trying to solve and the the difference they were trying to make in the city of los angeles where where a lot of these communities don't have don't have the best access to fresh produce and after i met up with them i had a pretty clear list of requirements Uh, initially they were doing all of this process they were they were doing it in a big spreadsheet, and that, that was beginning to to slow them down, especially in the the gathering of the data for for the reports that they needed.
0: So, when you were orig- were originally proposed with this problem, and you had that massive spreadsheet going on, yeah, like what motivated you to use Flask out of uh, all the other things that you could have picked?
1: Well, one of them was that I would spend less time. If, if I would have gone with an existing e-commerce system, I would have spent additional time modifying it and taking away the features that they wouldn't need, that they wouldn't need. And I would also have spent more time in teaching them about this system, which might not have been as customized to their needs. They might have had needed to navigate through additional UI in order to, to achieve their process. And if not, I would have had to create that UI and work within the framework of an existing e-commerce system.
0: Okay. So did you look at other frameworks, though, to build a custom solution like Django or Rails or something like that?
1: Yeah, I had looked at, at Django. Um, however, I didn't have, I didn't have uh, as much experience with Django. So I, I wasn't too confident about choosing Django and um, I, di- I didn't want to be in a position where the project would have been delayed for them because of, of my lack of experience with something like Django. Um, the, another reason why I chose Python Flask was because I already knew the, the time that it would take me to build something. It was more likely for me to to complete the delivery within the deadline.
0: You've been developing it for three years now. Is this a single, like, monolithic Flask app, or did you break it up into microservices?
1: It's a single monolithic Flask app. The Python scraper that downloads the pricing data, it's its own script. That's, those are the, the two components to it, and it, it runs uh, weekly.
0: Okay, so that, that scraper then... Are you scraping things directly from what is it, the
1: USDA site? Yeah, I think I think it downloads the Excel file, but it has to go in there and, and find the the link and and navigate to um, the different categories of produce. Ah.
0: Kinda interesting that those guys don't have an API set up yet. Yeah. So did you find it to be kind of a challenge then to scrape their site or was it not too bad?
1: Um it wasn't too bad because because the, the time estimate that i gave myself to complete that it was pretty accurate i didn't hit any roadblocks
0: is this application server side rendered or did you go like api based with with some javascript front end like how do your clients use this app
1: most of the pages are rendered on the server there are some api endpoints to to make calculations because one of the other features is a a markup calculator and it does some calls to the backend through ajax in order to bring in some data into the calculator um, there's another cool thing that's uh it uses linear regression to to bring up some pricing suggestions also i don't know how much they use that usually i think i found out like by working with my client And even from them hiring like a pricing expert that most people that do business, I guess, in produce, they it seems like they like like round numbers, like five percent, ten percent. And and sometimes they'll change it. But when they decide on a different price, it seems like it's intuitive to them. Like they they somehow know the, the prices uh, how much they should mark up based on like the prices. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I never noticed that. But now the next time I go to the store, I'm going to make sure to to notice the prices of all things down to the cent. <laughs> so when it comes to this application, you mentioned server side, maybe a little bit of Ajax calls here and there. Are you using anything like WebSockets or no?
1: Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed working on on this project is is implementing a real time updating of the the screen on which they're placing their orders so they're they're able to to make changes on this screen simultaneously along with other people in their team and it'll show the names of the other people that are on the screen and it's kind of, kind of like google spreadsheets where you log in and you can see the people that are on the same screen and when they make changes you'll the the team members will see those changes instantly
0: oh yeah that's definitely nice so it's like if two people were to be logged on from different you know areas or whatever different sites and uh, there's like 100 apples and they put an order for 50 of them the other person would see the quantity of those apples drop down to 50 because the other person used 50 i guess something like that
1: yeah yeah exactly like that it was enjoyable for me to code that in there
0: so when it came to implementing that uh which library did you go with or service even
1: i used something called flask socket io on the back end and then on on the front end it was the uh socket io library
0: right do you remember like if it was easy to set up painful to set up how was that process
1: um it wasn't intuitive like um yeah it took it took some effort I didn't I didn't get stuck on like some parts of it Uh, the documentation I thought it was pretty good for the for flask socket IO so yeah I just spent some hours like like uh, putting this together uh, uh, looking at the documentation and implementing the the feature into this existing system because that that came on a on a separate phase
0: was that like phase three or phase two
1: it was i think phase two
0: what was the final phase
1: they wanted some reporting dashboards on like their home screen for that i used i think charts js and i created additional api endpoints for that
0: okay now when it came to that dashboard did you also use socket io to like some numbers to it in real time or that just wasn't necessary?
1: No, I didn't, I didn't do that in real time. It wasn't necessary. It just, um, it calls the the API endpoint when they refresh the screen and some of these, um, numbers are cached per day so that they can, you know, pull up really quick, they'll just be loaded from the cache.
0: So maybe that's a good time to lead into like the other parts of your tech stack. So are, are you using Redis as a backend for that cache or something else?
1: No, it's, it's a pretty basic cache. I think it's called flask cache. Like it, it was nothing fancy. Like, uh, you, you basically just define like these functions. And I think, I think you, you, uh, decorate some of your flask endpoints. I don't remember too well.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I've used it before. So the way you can have it set up your backend for the cache is you could use something like Redis, so it's outside of the Flask application. But you can also keep it in memory as well. But if you weren't using Redis, then it sounds like you just used the in-memory cache.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think Redis would have been like over-engineered, mm-hmm. uh, especially I had I had never worked with Redis before. You know, it's just a a couple days or weeks worth of data. Figure the server can handle it
0: right at that point you can almost like do it with pen and paper you know (laughs) like (laughs) manually calculate it uh so you mentioned using sql alchemy then are you using postgres on the back end for your database or MySQL, something else
1: yeah i'm using postgres on the back end
0: okay how's that been, been going good so far
1: yeah i just ran into one one issue um i remember like a couple of times there was uh a setting that um, on, on Flask, I think I I had left it on debug mode, and there was uh some considerable slowness on production, and I I logged into the the SQL Alchemy, and some sessions were left open because the debug mode it was logging something and it would exit. It would exit without closing the SQL alchemy session. So I, I went in there and I I deleted some records from a table that keep that manages these sessions. That was a, the one thing that I the problem that I ran into.
0: Right. Um, Sounds like good times. Yeah. Now you mentioned leaving debug mode on by accident. Are you using like G-Unicorn, UWSGI, or did you even happen to use like the built-in Flask web server? Hopefully not, but maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm using uh, Unicorn to serve the app, and then and I'm using Nginx to, to create a reverse proxy server.
0: So when it comes to running this application in production, like what cloud hosting provider are you using?
1: I really like DigitalOcean. I've created, a. I've hosted a Flask app before on Dreamhost, but they just do something to their servers where it, it breaks the app and I, I have to go in and like touch some file to restart it. And additionally, I have, I have to delete the virtual environment for some reason and recreate it. I ran into that issue on Dreamhost on some other projects before. So I just, I stopped working on DreamHost, hosting on DreamHost because I don't want to deal with that. It's it's not good for business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not good for business, not good for your brain, (laughs) having to debug things like that. Now, you mentioned using uh, virtual environments. I guess then you're not using Docker for the setup?
1: No, I'm, I'm not. I probably heard about Docker like a year or two after that and i mean at that point i already had this process in place um i'm not one that's that keeps up with the trends um i i usually try to stick to to the technologies that i that i like to work with and i have some experience with because the, the technologies and the frameworks they they're coming up with like new stuff pretty quick and feel like some of these are just trends or fads.
0: Yeah, no, it can get really tiring trying to keep up with all of them.
1: Yeah, I, I have explored like some of them. I am open to learning about them. I actually wanted I wanted to learn about Docker and and I went back and I got my visitor application app that I coded and I created a Docker file for it. Um, I, I have a I wrote a, an article about it, too and I put it on on my website and I put it on LinkedIn Um, because I I do know like once I started reading about Docker it was pretty clear to me like the advantage that comes with using it how you can automate some of these deployments like I want to use it I want to use new technologies but if I don't have an incentive um, all that I can do is like read about them and do like a hello world tutorial um, because, you know, there's there's other work to be done that that uh, people are going to be paying for and they want it in a timely manner, too. So I can't can't always be like messing around with new stuff, um, although I don't I don't do freelance anymore. Uh, at least for now. Did you get employed somewhere then or? Yeah, I landed a job out here. Um, I've moved to another city where it's more like a suburban vibe. Uh, so there's, there's less people like trying to do their own thing and starting their own, having their own little startups, I feel. So I was having some trouble finding newer clients and this recruiter reached out to me and she got me like a pretty good job and I took it.
0: Nice. So. Rewinding back a little bit to what you said before about this being deployed on DigitalOcean, can you get into like what machine specs you picked for the server? Like how much CPU and memory it had?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I picked, uh, I think it was, it wasn't anything huge. It was probably like a gig of Ram and two cores or something with an, an SSD hard drive. It, It wasn't anything big, but, um. I remember I, I was updating everything and then it was asking for more RAM. I just went ahead and uh, I upgraded it, but I, I think I could have modified the the swap and, and restarted the system, but I just went ahead and like I upgraded it and then they, they power cycled it and it was, everything was fine again. But I, I think it could be running on lower specs. Right.
0: That is one, one of the nice things though, about DigitalOcean, right? It's like, you can just click a button, say that you want more RAM or more, whatever. Power goes off, power comes on and it's like 30 seconds later, you have it.
1: Yeah. I really like the platform they, they offer.
0: So what OS are you running on that server?
1: What OS?
0: Like what distro of Linux?
1: It's Ubuntu. Um, I don't remember the LTS.
0: A mm, Couple years ago, maybe 1604? Yeah maybe 18.04, but I think that's maybe a year or so after your site went live. Uh, so when it comes to setting that server up, then did you just SSH in by hand and then you installed everything you needed for the app? Or did you use some type of configuration management tool?
1: I used uh, M along with PIP. PIP allows you to, to create a list of the Python modules that you're using.
0: Right. So you had a requirements file.
1: Yeah. And then I have a a script that populates the environment variables from a file. And what else? Yeah, I think that's it.
0: Right, so maybe you you had to install Postgres and things like that?
1: Yeah, that part was pretty smooth.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, if you don't need to configure it in detail, then it's like you just apt install Postgres and you're on your way, kind of.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was pretty smooth.
0: Okay, so are you using anything... um, well, if you're using Ubuntu 6, you know, for I forgot if that had, like, system D. But do you remember, like, if you used any type of, like, process management tools on the server? Like, things that would make sure that uh, the G Unicorn web server would come back up if it happened to crash?
1: Um, did I?
0: Maybe Supervisor is one of them?
1: I don't think I did.
0: So Kind of just rolling the dice there, make sure it just stays up?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they, they can call me. They can call me whenever. It, it'll be, like, pretty clear to them that it's not working like they'll they try to view the site like they'll just have uh an nginx error and they'll call me and i'll go in there and do it i think i looked into it but i didn't want to spend time on it because it was like something something new to me
0: uh, so i guess the real question is did they ever call you saying the site was down
1: i think they they called me once for that uh that bug with the the session that was left open on Postgres. Um, and then they called me again for a SSL certificate that had expired. The certificate, like it wasn't even part of the contract or the work, but then I, I saw like the certified bot tool.
0: So that would be going through Let's Encrypt then, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I forgot how many years Let's Encrypt's been going, but I guess at least three by now. Yeah. Did you start? Unless you started with something else before. No, you I came started
1: out? with that. Yeah, I definitely started with that.
0: Do you also have nginx configured to serve your static files, like images and style sheets?
1: I think I do. Yeah, I just have a. It's like a configuration in the server block.
0: Right. So you're not using like an external CDN or something like that. No.
1: No, it's not. Not needed. It's a team of like maybe four or five people.
0: Okay. So speaking of maybe some other services you might be using, though, like external ones, uh, do you use anything for like sending emails out or like logging, reporting, metrics, things like that?
1: I was using just like Flask Mail to send out the password resets, password reset emails, but that's about it. When
0: it When it came to configuring Flask Mail, what did you use as the email server? like sendgrid, postmark or did you go like even gmail or something like that?
1: Um I had him create like a like an account just for that like through their email provider and and just put in like the password and smtp right yeah just configured through uh, flask mail. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty basic.
0: But now this application though there's no it doesn't need to accept payments in real, like, are you using Stripe or PayPal for this or no?
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't do any of the payment management. Um, the the core of it is to keep track of these orders and and have like a, a user interface that's more suitable for creating these orders as opposed to a spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, it's funny because like I do freelance work too and so many... So many apps that I build are just things like that, where it's like, we want to replace this Excel sheet with an actual application. Yeah, that seems to be very common. Yeah. Going back to maybe the deployment process, like what what was your deployment process like? Like How did you get the new version of the code from your dev box onto that DO box?
1: I used to get and log into the server and pull the code. That's pretty much it.
0: So you were pushing code from your dev box onto like GitHub or somewhere, and then pulling it from there?
1: Yeah, to bitbucket and then go into the server and do a git pool.
0: Right. What about some of those uh, environment values, like the secret keys that maybe you wouldn't want to put in version control, or were they in there?
1: I don't think they're in version control at all. Yeah, I, I created those manually, like on that end. The script, the script to run that to populate the environment variables that that's on the repo, but the values are not, I think uh, the, I created like a configuration object in Python and that configuration object uses the environment module.
0: When it comes to things like testing your code, uh, were you running that through like a CI service or did you just run some local tests maybe before you deployed?
1: No, I didn't do any testing on it when we were, talking about this project and negotiating that that was one of the things that they gave up as part of the, the negotiation that they said they, they were gonna you know test, test it themselves like actually use the software along with their old process for about two weeks and eventually just leave the old process within that testing they also um they were populating their produce catalog as well.
0: So I guess I got tested in, uh, in production kind of.
1: Yeah. I got tested like in parallel. So if if they were like populating their Excel sheet, they would create the order on the software as well. At the end of the week, they would put them side by side and just look at the numbers and they, they did that for about a week or two.
0: But this sounds like it's not a very fast-moving application, right? Like you weren't deploying it two times a day or something like that, right?
1: No, no. I mean the the requirements were like they're pretty clear. It, it was all laid out in the in the contract. Yeah, I mean they they we had to negotiate, and that was one of the things that I that I said they could do if um, they they didn't mind. Testing it themselves, I could I could meet them at the price point. It was pretty straightforward their their process. It took a lot of steps. The process had had steps, but they were all kind of like linear,
0: right? So it was more just a judgment call. Let them do their thing to reduce the price because that was the only way to for the project to make sense, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So now that the app is up and running and uh, at least tested from their end, did you do anything to maybe? plan for disasters like database backups and things like that
1: digital ocean has a backup plan and i i set that up for like i think weekly backups and um also it has exporting features so they have that too they want to keep their own records or do additional stuff with this data but yeah, the backups are in place. Maybe they're daily. I, I know DigitalOcean does some kind of backup for free. I don't know how often, but then they have one where you can sign up and it, the, the frequency is is higher, their backup frequency. So I signed up for the paid one. Yeah, like if anything happens, I can just restore from that.
0: Right. Yeah, the paid one is something like... I think it's like you pay 20% more, but then, yeah, you just get a complete backup of the image that you can restore from.
1: I have, uh, the database is on the same droplet. It's safe against data loss.
0: Right. Yeah. I almost forgot about that. I mean, I sorta kind of guessed that, yeah, all of this is running on one server, right? Yeah. That's cool. So I guess wrapping things up a little bit here, like what's some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app over the years?
1: Best tips and lessons. Test your code, I guess. Yeah, there's, there's always like uh, when you write code that isn't tested programmatically, there's that kind of like fear on the back of your head. Of like, what if something doesn't work? I don't like to feel that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, when you said that there was no test like that, like, I'm just thinking like, can I even sleep tonight knowing that there's no test written for this code that I didn't write. Like it started to make it like creeping me out. Like that would keep me up at night.
1: It it's it could be worse. Like it's not a time sensitive system. It's not a system that handles payments also. And they, they do know how to do this process. Like I guess on pen and paper. So that, that was one of the things that allowed me to to kind of like work with them and their pricing and say you know like it's not super crucial that that i write a unit test for this it's it's not like a some kind of engine that we're programming if the system goes down people are not going to lose money they're gonna go back to a process that they've been doing for i guess that day yeah, after that I I've I've worked on some on projects that I definitely write tests for and wrote like a e-commerce system. That thing had like all sorts of tests. I feel like pretty confident delivering that other e-commerce system with all those tests written.
0: So on that note, Francisco, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on fun times, reminiscing on these, <laughs> these projects. <laughs>
0: yeah. Going down memory lane. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to maybe your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that?
1: Yeah, sure. I have my, my website is losangelescoder.com. I'm currently not doing freelance because I'm, I work a full-time job. They don't want us moonlighting, <laughs> <laughs> right. but I have uh, I have my website there. I'm I'm pretty proud of it. It's all built on Flask, and I have some articles and I have some YouTube videos on there too. And my uh, I have some stuff on Git. Some of it is trash, but <laughs> some of it is neat. And so yeah, it's losangelescoder.com, and I also have an Instagram, losangelescoder.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop those in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.